Jones, Australia's leading voice. Thank you for being with us on this Tuesday night. You won't want to miss a syllable. Nothing woke here. We trade in common sense. Before I get to tonight's program, I noticed that some are waking up to the endless rhetoric of Jim Chalmers, the treasurer. We are tired of hearing the talk. Jim, you wanted to be in government. You're presiding over massive debt and over $2 billion of your own election promises this financial year and East increased spending required for health, aged care, the NDIS, defence and veterans, to name a few, so come clean. How are you going to pay for all of this? Raise taxes or cut spending? I'll tell you where you can start. When I worked for a Prime Minister, we had five staff. How does any Australian Prime Minister need 58 staff? Let some of these MPs work for their money, set a personal example and slash political staff costs, but do something. Well, Belarus has joined the war with Russia and Putin has unleashed a wave of deadly missile attacks on Ukraine's biggest cities. I'll look at that. An interesting piece yesterday by the former Liberal Attorney General George Brandis, the former High Commissioner of the UK. He is arguing that Kevin Rudd should be Australia's ambassador to Washington. Now, forget the politics for a minute. Brandis makes many valid points. He writes splendidly. Rudd has just finished a doctorate at Oxford University. He is Dr. Kevin Rudd. His thesis was a study of the theoretical bases of Xi Jinping's approach to international relations. So Kevin Rudd is well equipped for the role, but would he think he was the president? How relevant are the teals? They're not needed in the lower house, Albo's got the numbers, but with the Greens and one independent needed in the Senate, no one's listening to the teals. Plus the fact they've got nothing to say, they now want to talk about sustainable planning. Someone should tell them that's a state issue. Who voted for these people? A vote for irrelevance. In the commercial world, the battle between Solomon Liu, the most knowledgeable retailer in the country, and a Maya board that seems to know little about retail, the battle continues. It's an extraordinary argument by Maya that its board should remain majority independent. I've never known what that means. You see, I would like people on the board who either have a knowledge of the industry or a stake in it. They put their hand in their pocket. Solomon Lou makes things happen. The Maya retailing outlets, I think, need the Solomon Lou touch. And congratulations to the theatrical entrepreneur, John Frost, who's brought the mousetrap, Agatha Christie's play, to Sydney. Millions have seen it in London, where it's played continuously since 1952, the longest running play ever on the West End. The production here is superb. The set is outstanding. The cast remarkable. Robin Nevin, one of Australia's theatrical greats, has done a brilliant job as director. Anna O'Byrne and Tom Conroy in the leads. Alex Rathgeber, Lawrence Boxall, he's outstanding. Adam Murphy, Charlotte Friels, the gift of Geraldine Turner and Jerry Connolly, brilliant in anything. So if you want a night of mystery, go to the Theatre Royal, The Mousetrap, it's on until October 30. Well, no traps here tonight. I'll have something to say, as I said, about the war in Ukraine and Putin in trouble. We are in trouble when Putin is in trouble. I'll look again at this National Anti-Corruption Commission. It can't be allowed to pass in its present form. The continuing energy mess, especially in relation to gas. Headlines today about The Voice. I'll help make sense of that. And the hypocrisy of politicians that won't surprise you. 
Plenty of common sense tonight. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. In Australia, we tend to be consumed by our own problems. It's not that we're insular, but sometimes the world spins without us noticing. I'm not an alarmist, but the situation in Europe, Russia versus Ukraine, merits very serious attention. It was only weeks ago on September 26, where little attention was given to the alleged Russian sabotage of their Nord Stream 1 and 2 natural gas pipelines. This was obviously directed at a weakening European economy. But what it meant was the neutralization of gas flows to Europe, showing that Russia was willing and able to increase economic pressure on the West, even at a cost to itself. Now, Nina Khrushcheva is the great granddaughter of the late Soviet leader, Nikita Khrushchev. She's currently professor at the New, New School in New York. Following this seemingly Russian-inspired cutting off of the gas flows to Europe, Professor Khrushcheva said, and I quote, I think we actually crossed the point where this is negotiable. I think we are in a new level of confrontation. All sides are determined not to lose and not to show weakness. I think we're getting to a very dangerous point, unquote. Now, the reason I'm saying this is that all this was before the blast on the road and rail bridge to Crimea. Now, the bridge is a symbol of Moscow's claims on Crimea. It's a US $3.6 billion bridge, the longest in Europe, and it's vital to sustaining Russia's military operations in southern Ukraine. Putin himself presided over the bridge's opening in 2018, a 20-kilometer, 20-kilometer colossus of steel and concrete connecting the Crimean Peninsula, which Putin illegally annexed, to mainland Russia. It was a media extravaganza, the opening. At the time, Putin boasted, and I quote, People dreamed of building this bridge. Finally, thanks to your hard work and talents, this project, this miracle has come true. Well, at 6 a.m. last Saturday, Ukraine time, a giant explosion sent a fireball rolling across Putin's crown jewel. It could be said, mirroring the language at the opening of the bridge, all thanks to Putin's hard work in launching an invasion of Ukraine in February. Parts of the bridge could be seen sinking in the water. The bridge is the sole route for trains and trucks carrying troops and weapons from mainland Russia to Crimea, from where they are then funneled into the war against Ukraine. This is a strategic and symbolic disaster for Putin. His pet project and the attack occurred a day after his 70th birthday. As James Nixie of the London think tank Chatham House said, and I quote, the attack will have a further sapping effect on Russian morale and will give an extra boost to Ukraine's morale. Conceivably, the Russians can rebuild it, but they can't defend it while losing a war." Unquote. Now, there's no denying this is a humiliating setback for Russia, the latest in a string of defeats that Putin's military has suffered. Ukraine has made significant gains in the east with a flurry of attacks before winter sets in, including retaking thousands of square kilometres of territory and strategic cities. Ukraine is now pushing further into Russian-held territory in the south. And according to some reports, Ukrainian troops have described their Russian counterparts as being in a panic with demoralized soldiers surrendering and abandoning equipment in growing numbers. Now, it's only a matter of months ago that Putin was regarded as one of the most formidable and strategically cunning leaders on the global stage. Now, the lamentable performance 
of his military in Ukraine has left him not only facing criticism from the West, but also growing frustration from within Russia, where no one is willing to criticize Putin directly. As one writer said, quote, that's a one-way street to imprisonment. But only days ago, the head of a Russian parliamentary defense committee, Andrei Kartapilov, attacked the military for covering up bad news from the war front. And the deputy head of a Moscow proxy administration in southern Ukraine denounced Russia's defense minister's performance as being so poor that any real officer, he said, would kill himself. This is uncharted territory for Putin. There have been protests against him in the past, but never has he faced such widespread denunciation over his tactical decision-making. This is a man who's built his authoritarian strong arm reputation on his ability to demolish all opposition. Now he faces failure on the battlefield. What then, what then does all this mean? Conceding defeat in Ukraine is not an option for Putin. That would risk his own departure from the scene. So he will double down militarily in a bid to stave off further humiliation. One dominant feature of the Putin strategy is if he's confronting military failure, he answers those failures by doubling down. And as you've seen recently, calling up untrained recruits, conducting more attacks on cities, and of course, threatening to use nuclear weapons. Well, the first part of that's begun. Putin has unleashed a wave of deadly missile attacks on Ukraine's biggest cities on Monday of this week, two days ago. Belarus has entered the war saying it was forming a, quote, regional group of troops, unquote, with Moscow. And the coordinated attacks have hit Ukrainian civilian, uh, civilian targets, including in Kiev. In one of the more disgusting performances, one of the targets was a park in central Kiev, usually a centre for families and buskers. The area was obliterated. Early reports say that eight people had died and 24 people were injured in that explosion alone. And as the Ukrainian President Zelensky said, unfortunately, there are dead and wounded, accusing Putin of wanting to, quote, wipe us from the face of the earth, kill people who go to work. All this 48 hours after the Kirsch Bridge was hit by a huge blast. What this proves is simple. A weakened Putin does not make the world a safer place. There are few strategic analysts who believe he'll be banished from power so Putin's threats, including the nuclear threat, must be taken seriously. The world has to stop this man, but how? I've spoken on several occasions about this National Anti-Corruption Commission, and I've made the point that it was unsatisfactory in its present form. It can start its own investigations without a referral. The body would have retrospective powers. I've mentioned several times that the Liberal Party's DNA is opposed to retrospectivity. The opposition should say publicly, it won't support retrospectivity. It may support the concept of the bill, but surely it has a responsibility to say it will oppose a lot of the detail. Well, one person who's full bottle on the detail is the Vice President of the Rule of Law Institute of Australia, Chris Merritt. And he joins me. Chris, thank you for your time. Look, as you've said, and I've said, the campaign to stamp out public sector corruption is laudable, but you can hardly say that this bill is laudable. Mm, I, look, I, I tend to agree, Alan. Um, look, starting point, I don't think it's a healthy thing to establish a parallel system of justice, but the, the policy decision has been taken to do that 
That's what this commission will amount to. Now, now that that policy decision has been taken, I think the... Just to the, interrupt you there, so to our viewers, the parallel system. So we've got the courts mm. and we've got the police and all these sorts of people to hunt down corruption. But now we've got this. Yeah, now on that, um, before we dive into the detail, the, the benefits of the justice system are frequently overlooked. But it, over hundreds of years, the, the rights of the individual have gained a lot of protection. And most of those protections, the critical ones, will be stripped away in this commission, mm. just as they're stripped away in the mm. New South Wales model, the New South Wales mm. Independent of Corruption. They yes. use coercive power mm. and the National Commission will use coercive and power. And this commission can define almost anything as corruption. I mean, how is that democratic lawmaking? Well, it's not. Um, the, the problem gets down to the definition. Yeah. In section eight of the, the bill that's been introduced towards to parliament, there's two real problems with the definition. One is the use of what's been referred to in New South Wales, and it's copied from New South Wales, as the could test. Dreadful. So it, it, no, few would object to mm. pursuing conduct that undermines the integrity or honesty of public officials. Mm. But this bill would go further and it would declare as corrupt conduct Something. conduct that could, could. have that yeah. effect. Now, that, that's, what's yeah. that mean? If you get in your car before yeah. you turn the ignition on, yeah. you could speed. exceed the speed, speed limit. limit. Yes. We'll charge you. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. It's, I it's, mean, and you, coming back to your parallel systems of justice, now the laws of the land define corruption, but this commission can provide a definition of its own. Corrupt but, conduct be wrong, beyond the wrongdoing listed in the bill. Now, you point out that the explanatory memorandum, which says, quote, this limb of the definition, which would provide the commissioner with flexibility to address emerging areas of corruption that may not currently be foreseen and may not fall with any of the other more specific limbs of the definition. Chris, what does that mean other than the fact that the commissioner in this thing has extraordinary powers. Extraordinary and almost unlimited reach into areas that nobody can even conceive of. If the, the parliament chooses to deal with unforeseen circumstances, it's up to parliament to deal with it. Yes. It's not up to some yep. commissioner using coercive power to suddenly declare that under the Act, I can now investigate this, which was mm. not previously considered to be corrupt conduct. Mm. But I, I now declare that this was unforeseen at the time. Mm. And I now declare that uh, you are guilty of corrupt conduct mm. without I mean, any say-so from Parliament. Yeah, I mean, you called it the door to the unknown. Now, the people watching me, and we constantly say, go to your MP, go and see your MP. So he goes to the MP. The MP is most probably under surveillance. There's a tree branch falling over his yard. He wants him to do something about it, and da 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 da. The next thing, the bloke's hauled up here because someone, the commissioner, thinks that he was using coercive powers to get this MP to do something he shouldn't have been doing. I mean, where does this stuff end? It's King Henry VIII stuff. That's exactly right. It's a, it's a throwback to an era of tyranny that in Westminster parliaments like ours and like the British Parliament should have been left centuries ago, and it's just mm. been hauled out of retirement and used to transfer power from Parliament 
to the executive branch of government. And that's what this commission mm. is. Well, it's what's not Dreyfus, a court. What is Dreyfus up to, seriously? I mean, a lot of people have real concerns about Dreyfus, the Attorney General. I mean, surely if the commission wants to expand its jurisdiction into what you call unforeseen areas, shouldn't those areas be defined by the parliament? Yes, they should. Now, th there's two ways of doing that. The, the best way is to amend the Act. Another way is for the Commission to have the power, the authority, to make a regulation and lay that before Parliament as a disallowable instrument. Mm. So if Parliament disagrees, all they simply need to do is just disallow it and it has that's no it. effect. That's right. But this, this goes beyond that. This is a law of open-ended breach. Yes. It's not good enough. No, I mean, there are no, for the benefit of our lay people watching who don't want to read 500 pages of all this stuff, simply there are no boundaries to the reach of this commissioner. Mm. So who is safe if the bill allows the commission to expand into unknown areas, to investigate corruption, quote, of any other kind, not merely those forms that are set down in the bill. I mean, you make the point that if this sort of lawmaking catches on, your words, quote, people could soon be punished, not just for breaking the law, but for conduct of any other kind that some bureaucrat doesn't like. Look, it's handing, it's, it's not legal power, it's, it's setting up the commission as a, a moral guardian of society. Yep. And I don't think we live in that. I no. don't think we want to live in that sort no. of society. We live in a society where we are free under the law, not under the say-so of some commissioner. And we have a say in the laws through our elected representatives. Correct. This is a direct challenge to mm. the power of Parliament. What well, is the opposition on top of this? I mean, I mean, you and I have been talking for years about the farcical episodes of the New South Wales ICAC, the Independent Commission Against Corruption. You made the point that Dreyfus, explaining the jurisdiction of this body in the federal parliament, gave an answer that was a direct lift from New South Wales ICAC. But what the federal parliament wasn't told was that the provisions in question had been the subject of severe criticism in a report tabled in the New South Wales Parliament in 2017 by the former judge, John Nicholson. I've read that report. And he basically said that ICAC in New South Wales was adopting a standard which, quote, undermines the presumption of innocence. Mm. Is that where we're going to go federally? Look, that's how it looks. I'm, I'm just hoping that this is simply an example of slipshod uh, drafting, that mm. once the parliamentarians on both sides of politics realise how rough this drafting is, they'll do something about it. This but is, but this the reality is that the part of the lower house, Albo's got the numbers, so shoot it through, pass it by. These people don't read this stuff. Then it goes to the Senate. Well, he'll get the Greens on side by making a few concessions, most probably on the voice or something, and they'll whip it through up there and it becomes law. Mm -hmm. I mean, just coming back to this dreadful proposition, I mean, if this is to operate nationally, the Federal Commission could, 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 adopt the New South Wales approach and crack down on conduct that in the Commission's assessment, we can't stress this too much for the viewers out there, could, could affect the honesty or impartiality of public officials. Who is going to go down that road? Look, the problem, Alan, is a lot of this, a lot of the defenders of this uh, mechanism, the same as in New South Wales. Say, so, look, it all depends on getting the right person to be the commissioner. But I disagree with that. I think that if this is an agency of state, this is an institution, a national institution of state, it needs to be literally foolproof. It needs to have checks yeah. and balances in place 
to qualify the power of the, uh, this great person who's going to be the moral guardian of society. It's not good enough to simply appoint somebody and give them un almost unlimited power without reference to parliament, without reference to the courts. It's far, far too dangerous and but, it's too vague. Yeah, but I mean, everyone goes on about broken promises. They're worried about the tax cuts. You can't break the promise. Before the election, didn't Labor give the impression that the Commission was going to crack down on the worst kind of corruption, serious and systemic? Mm. Dreyfus has completely departed from that. That promise is broken. This Commission can pursue serious or systemic corruption, but there'll be no longer a requirement to focus on corruption that's serious and systemic. So everyone's at risk. Yes, look, this is the problem that before the election, the, the qualification of serious and systemic corruption meant that the Commission would focus its efforts on the worst sort of conduct. Now, by changing one word and making it serious or systemic corruption, that means that this Commission will be within its rights to focus on conduct that is not serious. Mm. That's not good enough. Mm. This is $262 million over four years. I know. And the Greens and the Teals want public hearings. They want the stoning of people in the public place and are concerned, complaining the Albanese government will restrict public hearings. But Chris, the opposite is the case. Mm. That's exactly right, Alan. The, what they've done is they've ignored the problems that arose in, in New South Wales. In and and yep. the, Yes, and the reform that was put in place yep. in New South Wales. In New South Wales, to hold a public hearing, the commissioner needs the support of at least one of the other commissioners. Mm. That's not the case with the NAC, the National Commission. The commissioner can hold a public hearing of, on his own discretion based on a, an illusory test, mm. I would say it's illusory, of determining that there are exceptional circumstances and it's in the public interest. Mm. And who determines that? The mm. commissioner. commissioner. There's no it. internal Well, exceptional or circumstances test. are not defined. I mean, basically, in lingo that we can understand, this has stripped away, you talked earlier about checks and balances, this has stripped away the checks and balances that seek in New South Wales to prevent the abuse by public hearings. Mm. So, but if this bill's enacted, the national body will find it easier to hold public hearings, easier to hold public hearings than its counterpart in New South Wales. So show trials are on the agenda. That's exactly right. Look, it's, it's as if the, the federal government has closed its eyes to the lessons that have yep. been learned yep. by the New South Wales government. Yep. The New South Wales mm. government introduced reforms some years ago to ensure that the one commissioner model mm. handing immense power to one person doesn't go ahead. They've That's now got it. three commissioners and there's a check on the power of the Yeah, the check is that the reputational harm, the potential for reputational harm in New South Wales must be considered by the chief commissioner and at least one of the two other commissioners. There is no restriction in this national scheme. The Ayatollah, the commissioner, single, he decides. I mean, you, I think you used that word Ayatollah. I'm borrowing your words. You called him the unchallenged Ayatollah. So he can subject people to public hearings, even if that course of action was opposed by all three of the deputy commissioners. <laughs> Where are we? I mean, public uh, submissions close when on this? They close on Friday. Is that long enough? No, it's not. <clears throat> I think it's been uh, 14 days for the, for the entire period. It's, it's, I'm very worried that this is going to be rushed through. There is capacity to improve this bill. 
it should be properly considered instead of rushed through in such a short period. Unbelievable. The public submissions. Listen, we've run out of time. We'll need to talk to you again about all of this, but let's wait and see what the public commissions do. I'm not confident that this isn't going to be barged through the parliament. I think they said they wanted it over and in law before parliament rises. So that's only a handful of days. Mm. It's a worry. It is a big worry. Thank you for your time, Chris. Quite okay. There he is, Chris Merritt. He's forgotten more about it than most of those people know, but I can assure you, look, I've worked at the highest levels in government, uh, 150 people in the lower house. I wouldn't bet that five have read the legislation, the bill. I wouldn't bet that five have done it. Just put their hands up and say, here, 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 and through it goes. And here we've got a commission with just extraordinary, and if you don't want to use the word exceptional, exceptional powers. We'll keep you posted nonetheless. Well, I can't say it often enough, but the headlines today say it all. Energy prices through the roof, and businesses and homes are going to suffer this well down the track. I'll have something to say about that later but it is the price we are paying for ideology trumping reality. Let me return briefly to this energy crisis that is finally starting to hit home, hit home here in Australia. It's becoming clear that the problems for our energy grid only begin at electricity prices. There is more. The elephant in the room is now gas. I might add, those who demonise fossil fuels because they want to attack coal will never tell you that gas is a fossil fuel. However, on the gas front, there was a new development last week that deserves ventilation. Cop this. Australia's eastern states are on the verge of a critical gas shortage, even though we are the world's largest liquefied natural gas exporter. According to an August report by the ACCC, demand for gas will exceed supply by 56 petajoules on the east coast next year. Meanwhile, the big gas companies like Shell have been exporting excess or uncontracted gas that could have been sold to the domestic market to us, Australian businesses and households. Overall, the ACCC says exporters will take 57.6 petajoules of gas from the domestic market to sell overseas next year. Now, the average Australian home uses 32 gigajoules of gas, but a petajoule is a million gigajoules. So imagine 56.6 petajoules of gas taken from us and sold overseas. That's equivalent to the gas usage of 1.8 million Australian homes, a fifth of all occupied dwellings, the gas exported overseas. We shouldn't be surprised, given that 80% of the gas is exported to whom? 71% goes to China. In other words, our gas producers are prioritising international buyers over the domestic market and exposing Australian consumers to volatile global prices that don't fairly account for our own abundance of gas. As a result, LNG prices have gone up almost tenfold since 2020, even though the cost of production has remained the same. Domestic gas prices have gone up by a similar amount, a key factor in why Australia lost 121,500 manufacturing jobs in the year to August. And although prices have come down slightly, they're still 500% higher than traditional prices and 300% higher than they were before the Ukraine war. Now, it doesn't have to be this way. Go 2,000 kilometres to the west and there's no rort. According to the Australian Financial Review, West Australia has become, quote, a low energy price paradise with the lowest natural gas prices in the OECD. Why? Well, Western Australia 
has a domestic gas reservation policy that forces gas companies to reserve 15% of the gas they produce for the people of WA. I've been arguing about this for years. The scheme has been so successful that Western Australia has the reserves to product, to, sorry, a reserves to production ratio in excess of 100 years, which means this low energy price, low energy price paradise they've called it, will go on forever. Look, it's common sense stuff, but of course, Federal Labor won't support a gas reservation policy. Instead of instituting a national gas reservation policy that will lower prices to the West Australian standard, Labor's just signed a deal with the gas companies that, quote, condemns more Australians to paying global spot gas prices that are already at unsustainable highs, unquote. That's according to the Executive Director of Manufacturing Australia, Ben Eady. The short point, Labor has locked us into sky-high gas prices that have been driven up by a war on the other side of the planet, even though we have an unparalleled abundance of our own gas right beneath us. If this is, isn't un-Australian, I don't know what is. When will political leaders in this country understand that flogging off our resources and leaving Australians and our industries high and dry is counter to the national interest and it's appalling economic management? As I've said before, it's like net zero. Another suicide note that our political class has signed without our consent and without thinking it through, let alone reading anything. But why would they? They know everything, don't they? Just ask them. They're called politicians who think they know everything. Let's go to Peggy Grandy, as we always do at this time every week, to gather insights into the American political system, or should we say the possible collapse of the American political system? As I've said many times, the greatest insurance policy that Joe Biden has is the vice president, Kamala Harris. You might recall that in the last Democratic presidential primaries, now remember there was a tribe of them that almost couldn't fit on the stage, but Kamala Harris wasn't one of them. She didn't make it. She had to withdraw after Tulsi Gabbard attacked her record as Attorney General in California. But to indicate the total absence of support for Kamala Harris within her own party, when she pulled out, there were 15 Democratic presidential candidates ahead of her. In other words, her own party didn't want her. Biden made her vice president. Draw your own conclusions, but this is what Biden said in February 2020. As vice president, I think it would be wonderful to have a woman or a person of color as vice president. So there you are. Here's the woman of color that even her own Democratic Party didn't want when the presidential primaries were being held. She barely gathered a vote. But there's one other thing before we go to Peggy that I'd like to share with you. Let me go back to that February onstage debate during the primaries, 2020. I'll just play you 18 seconds here simply because it highlights the extraordinary deterioration in Biden's cognitive capacity. You'll note here he speaks, he doesn't mumble, there is reasonable continuity, and he seems able to marshal ideas, none of which he can do now. Just listen, this is not such a bad thing. Listen to 18 seconds where Biden is talking coherently about why the president needs a good vice president. Listen to this. One of the things I learned is that no president in the 21st century can handle the job all by themselves. It's just too much that lands on your plate. 
So you've got to be prepared to turn over significant responsibility, as the president did with me on matters relating to a whole range of issues. That's pretty good. Let's go to Peggy and her thoughts on that. Peggy, thank you again for your time. It is a miracle and utterly damaging to the free world that Biden hasn't been moved on already. What are your thoughts about the Biden coherence in those comments and the need for a strong vice president? Well, thank you, Alan, as always, for having me on. And clearly, we see the mental decline that's coming. And it's not just you and me that see it. And it's not just the United States and Australia that see it. It's our enemies all around the world who are sensing weakness. They're sensing an incoherence. They're watching all these errors that are made, which are not just gaffes. They are complete lapses in his capacity to understand complex things. And then to your other point about Kamala Harris, as you said, she is the best insurance policy. The vice presidency is a very important role. And historically, 15 times the vice president has ultimately become the president of the United States. Eight of those times, it was due to the death of a president. And so it's a very significant role. He chose somebody who checked a few boxes, but did not choose somebody based on merit. And they needed to look to the people of California, who I think gave her less than 1% of the vote. So the people who knew Kamala Harris the best liked her the least. And that should have been every indication that that was going to be a poor choice. And it has proven to be a disastrous Absolutely. choice for Biden. Well, Peggy, that, the bit we just heard, I'm saying to our viewers and to Peggy, that was February 2020. Now, listen to this now, which is April 22. The president of the United States, the leader of the free world, starts talking about one word to describe America. His mind goes blank and somehow he mentions the Himalayas and President Xi of China. Now, this is both embarrassing, but you do have to feel sorry for the massive deterioration in the man's cognitive ability. Listen to this. America is a nation that can be defined in a single word. I was in the, foot, uh, foot, foot, excuse me, the foothills of the Himalayas with Xi Jinping. Peggy, how much longer can this go on? Well, if it was a Saturday Night Live skit, it would be something funny. But here it's dangerous, and not only for us and our allies, but for the entire world. And it's not just things like that. We've watched within the last week or so, he's made the statement about Armageddon. He opened a speech by saying, first, I'd like to start with two words, made in America. Yeah. And it's just amazing that he gets away with these things. Yeah. But, you know, the media is complicit. They're totally. going behind him and the vice president, like those people in the parade scooping up after the Clyde Absolutely. scales. And they just, Absolutely. there's nothing to see here. We're going to make it disappear. Mm. We see it. Absolutely. I mean, Donald Trump, they would have run him out of town. But we see now the need for Donald Trump. Well, OK, let's move then. I've said, and Peggy said, the greatest insurance policy is Kamala Harris. In other words, the Democrats now say we can't get rid of this bloke because this woman is worse. Now, Kamala Harris was in South Korea last week to tour the heavily fortified border with the nuclear-armed North Korea. The trip was supposed to be aimed at strengthening the security alliance with Seoul, South Korea. Listen to this woman. She is as much incapable of marshalling ideas as Biden. This is the vice president of the United States. You try and pick up the massive blunder. Here we go. So the United States shares a very important relationship, which is an alliance with the Republic of North Korea. 
and it is an alliance that is strong and enduring. Peggy, what on earth do you make of this? She's talking about an enduring alliance with North Korea. In the transcript released by the White House, I mean, this is just as unbelievable, they scratched out the North in North Korea. They actually released what she said. I've got a picture of this. We'll shove it up on the screen here. And you'll see, note on the screen, the North there on the second line has been crossed out. Why would some donkey at the White House release a transcript even, in, even mentioning North Korea? Peggy, what do, you, what do you, what do the Americans make of this? Well, it's frightening not only when you hear her say that, but you realize she and the president are surrounded by a group of dunces because these things are loaded in the teleprompter. And you would think that both the president and the vice president are at least doing one read through of their scripts before they say them. And there should be some red flags. She should understand that that's not the correct thing to say. Any elementary school kid here probably understands that. And so it's dangerous. It would be funny, but it's not. It's yes. incredibly dangerous. Yeah. And we see an increasingly aggressive and belligerent nuclear armed North Korea taking aim at all over the world. They have ballistic missiles that can now hit the United States. This is a dangerous situation. They're emboldening um, Iran. They're emboldening China and Russia. Everybody's being emboldened. And so it's because of weakness from Joe Biden, his policies, and that's, certainly that weakness is being echoed by his all. vice president. That's right. It affects us all. I mean, this was about the concern that the North Korean leader would conduct another nuclear test. That, of course, has happened. They called them tactical nuclear drills, all overseen by Kim Jong-un, which Donald Trump called the rocket man. And the rocket man was unheard of when Donald Trump was president. He, Donald Trump made it quite clear to the rocket man that you have good toys, our toys are bigger. Simple story, called him the rocket man. Well, North Korea has revised its nuclear laws last month, envisioning a wide range of scenarios in which, could, in which it could use nuclear weapons. And Mr. Kim declared North Korea, quote, an irreversible nuclear power. So, Peggy, that ends the possibility of denuclearization talks. What does this mean, do you think? Because Seoul, Tokyo and Washington, South Korea, Japan and America have ramped up combined naval exercises, including deploying the nuclear powered aircraft carrier named after your boss, Ronald Reagan, to the area twice. And that's infuriated North Korea, which sees the joint drills as rehearsals for invasion. You've been in this strategic environment. What are your thoughts? Well, it's really sad and scary to see that North Korea and China are basically calling the shots because there are regular military drills and exercises that take place all the time with our allies in that part of the world. And several times Biden has actually canceled them because he said, we don't want to provoke them. Well, his bad policies are the provocation provocation. He is the one who's causing that through his weakness for these bullies to be emboldened. And so we need to continue doing the things that we had scheduled and planned to do. And think about it. Why didn't any of this happen under Donald Trump? That's great. Because Trump, like my boss, Ronald Reagan, believed in peace through strength. You Absolutely. are the deterrent by using strong mm. language in a way that they know that you mean it and you're going to back it 100%, up. And so 100%. I mean, weakness there. Yeah, it's, it's not hundred percent. I mean, it's not the time for the free world to be led by a president who's lost his marbles and a vice president who doesn't know her geography to Trump and the Hispanic community. Now, Joe Biden was touring 
hurricane-ravaged Fort Myers, but Donald Trump made a 40-minute speech to the National Hispanic Leadership Conference in Miami. How significant was that, urging the Hispanic community to get behind him to stop the US becoming a country, his words, of recession, depression and fear. The Hispanic community have traditionally been Democrats supporters, but they claimed they supported Trump when Trump became president. How significant is this with the midterm only weeks away? Well, I don't know that recession, depression, and fear is a good strategic message going into the midterms or any time. But Donald Trump has con consistently gained grounds with the Hispanic community. And it's an insult for the Democrats to continue to believe that Hispanics like crime. They like open borders. They're okay with inflation and energy prices that are on the rise. It's insulting to them. And so Donald Trump always spoke to them from a space of policy that matched their values. And so we saw Maya Flores take a House seat in deep blue Texas, a seat that hadn't been held by a Republican for over 100 years. And so she flipped that seat. I think we're going to see a lot of surprises going into the midterms in November, not only in Texas, but all over the nation. I don't care whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. We don't want our kids dying of fentanyl. I don't care if you're a Hispanic or African-American or any other American person. We are not okay with crime, with inflation, oh. with gas prices, with open borders, with the wokeness in our schools. So these policies, if the Republicans continue to advocate for the return to Trump era policies, America first policies, and return against the Biden policies that are destroying America and the world, we're going to do very well in the midterms. Great stuff. Outstanding, Peggy. Outstanding. I mean, just for the benefit of our viewers, there are hundreds of thousands of people illegally crossing into America from countries such as Venezuela, Nicaragua and Cuba. And the wider voting, American voting public understand that this is a crisis. Trump told that audience of Latino leaders that he said in China, if somebody was caught in China selling drugs, they're given a trial quickly. And if they're guilty, they're executed. Said, I'm calling for the death penalty of human traffickers. Peggy made the point. I mean, the, that audience is not going to cop that sort of stuff. Peggy, great to talk to you. And of course, the midterms coming up in a matter of weeks. We'll have plenty to talk about in the weeks ahead. But thank you for your time, as always, and your insights. There she is, Peggy Grandy. Thank you, Alan. Impressive to listen to her, isn't it? What a mess it's in. But there we are, Biden and Kamala Harris leading the free world. You often hear the expression loosely used, it's time to wake up. Never has the comment been more relevant politically than it is today. We are swamped with ideology which bears no relation to reality. I could cite any number of policy areas, and I will eventually because this program is not woke, nor is it right wing. We simply offer views which are common sense. I've talked for years about the ideology behind net zero, and now look where we are today. Exactly where I warned we would be, and it's only going to get worse. This is where misplaced ideology takes you. Power prices in Australia, we're told, will soar by at least 35% in 2023. Alinta is an Australian electricity generating and gas retailing private company. Their CEO told an energy conference yesterday in Sydney, and I quote, it's horrendous, it's unpalatable. We don't want energy consumers getting their power bills and setting fire to them, unquote. Well, Origin Energy are saying the same thing. And this will flow onto household bills. Yet we are an energy and resource rich country where ideology has ignored reality. In both parties, I might add. And then we get the voice. It's beyond belief that anyone could begin to argue that there was any justification to constitutionally enshrine a division 
within Australian society based on race and stick it in the constitution. In other words, the government of the day, once it's enshrined constitutionally, would be quote unquote obliged to consult this national voice. As I've asked many times, who consults you about issues that overwhelmingly affect you? But the final report to parliament on this indigenous voice opens up by saying that the voice will overcome quote, the present level of exclusion from decision-making by indigenous Australians. Well, there are 11 indigenous Australians in the parliament. That is 4.8% of the parliament. 4.8% of Australia's population is about 1.25 million people. There aren't 1.25 million Australians, according to the census, who identify as Aboriginal. So in that sense, Indigenous Australians are overrepresented in the parliament. They have a big voice, but this voice would exclude other Australians. In our liberal democracy, should some citizens be treated differently from others based on race? Now forget the fact that this voice is meant to be about 24 people. No one knows how they're to be selected and who will vote and how they'll be paid and whether there'll be an electoral roll for the voice based on race, where only one race can vote. Forgive me, this is ideological rubbish. A fundamental principle of the Australian way of life is that every Australian gets the same say over our nation's future. No matter your race, your ethnicity, your religion or your gender, your voice matters equally. Well, two things have emerged today. Conservative Aboriginal leaders and Greens have reportedly held talks over their common opposition to this referendum on an Indigenous voice to the Parliament. Now, I know those meetings have occurred. Sensing failure, the Prime Minister now is apparently considering denying the presentation to the electorate of the details of the yes and no campaigns fundamental to any referendum. The Australian government must think that this will assist the yes vote, hardly. One of the reasons though, some of these so-called indigenous leaders are opposing this referendum is that they want a treaty, ostensibly between First Nations people and the federal government. Now, hang on a minute. There's a very loose use of the language, First Nations people. A nation is a territory where all the people are led by the same government. Australia is a nation. The four characteristics of a nation state are sovereignty, land, population and government. The First Nations people who were here when we were colonised had no government and no semblance of government. It's argued that we were colonised as if that's something we have to apologise for. In the history of the world, many nations have changed hands and been colonised. And if a nation above all else must be a group of people who share a common language, there is no one language which unites Aboriginal people and they have no government. They are not a nation. So forget the talk about treaties. How you formulate a treaty between a sovereign state like Australia and an outfit which is not a nation is beyond the realm of common sense. But on the same day that this is being argued, no referendum until we get a treaty, we learn of appalling results amongst Aboriginal students. In WA, only 42% of Indigenous students in the final year of high school met the requirements to graduate with a WA Certificate of Education in 2021. In New South Wales, the proportion of Indigenous final year high school students attaining their HSC has gone backwards. In the Northern Territory, the number of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander students who completed a year 12 certificate of education and training fell to 217, a decrease of 60 from the previous year. This is the point that Jacinta Price and other true leaders are making. 
that a so-called voice and a treaty go nowhere near addressing the kind of problems that many Indigenous Australians face and which are never addressed by the ideological zealots. Even if you supported a voice without doing any homework, you should surely understand that no single voice adequately represents the diverse and disparate communities within Aboriginal Australia. The most disturbing feature of all this is, of course, the absence of real leadership. Big corporates in the media, sporting codes, civic organisations, universities and celebrities don't even want to debate the issue that inserting an Indigenous voice into the Constitution would provide separate and legal rights to one group of Australians based on their race. This was once called apartheid. Before we go, what is political privilege? Now, not white privilege, not straight white male privilege, nothing of the sort. I'm talking about political privilege, which is real. Unlike the other forms of supposed privilege that are condemned by the woke elites in our universities, media organisations and corporate boardrooms. And the best example of this political or politician privilege is Anthony Albanese's climate change minister, Chris Bowen. Recently, we've learned that the range of electric vehicles from which federal politicians can choose has been dramatically expanded. And the decision came after the climate change minister, Chris Bowen, got special approval from, oh, I love this, the modern liberal lefty, Simon Birmingham. Fair dinkum. I wouldn't feed him. Anyway, he got approval from Birmingham to drive a taxpayer-funded Tesla 3 before the last election. How much does a Tesla 3 cost in Australia? It's about $65,000. And that doesn't include order and delivery fees. Bowen's Tesla 3 would have been manufactured in Chinese factories powered by Xi Jinping's fleet of 1,000-plus coal plants. If the battery in Bowen's Tesla 3 fails, it'll cost around $30,000 to replace it. Note that up to 680 tonnes of earth had to be mined to get enough lithium, cobalt, nickel, graphite, copper, steel, aluminium to produce just one of Bowen's Tesla 3 batteries. If Bowen charged his Tesla 3 on Sunday night, over 75% of the power would have come from New South Wales black coal-fired power plants. If Bowen's Tesla caught on fire, it would take up to 150,000 litres of water to put the fire out, 40 times more water than a standard gasoline car fire would require. And if Australia faces blackouts, Bowen would be asked to refrain from charging his Tesla to preserve power, just as Californians were asked to stop charging their electric vehicles during recent energy shortages. But Bowen doesn't care, no, no, no. This bloke's convinced of the electric vehicle revolution and he won't be told otherwise. Think about it. Right now, pensioners can't afford to keep the lights on, fill up the car with petrol and put food on the table, let alone buy an expensive electric vehicle. But Labor doesn't see the issue. Bowen's mate Adam Bant, the leader of the Greens, is no better. Get this. Bant was one of the top critics of Labor's recent net zero climate bill because it wasn't ambitious enough. And yet Bant has a habit of travelling across the country, flying in business class. Even though flying business class, with of course the biggest seats, emits three times as much carbon dioxide as does economy class, according to the World Bank. So to Bant and Bowen, stop with the hypocrisy, please. Stop with the fear-mongering. If you can't walk the walk, don't talk the talk. That's all from me tonight. 
Thank you for your company. Fred Paul's up next, and I'll see you tomorrow night at 8 o'clock. You're watching ADH. I'm Alan Jones. Good night.